Get out your sermon outline and you know the long sermon when the insert has an insert. The, uh, we have a very long text today, Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 8 and 9. And uh, I'm going to read that as we go through. Since it is uh, quite long as we go through the sermon, we will uh, go through the text. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of evil in the world, the cries of the martyrs, judgment, destruction, We imagine that John must have been overwhelmed. Overwhelm us in the same way. Remind us of what this is all about. Help us to see the gospel in the midst of the judgment. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you well know, we've just been through one of the biggest snowstorms uh, many of you have ever seen. Uh, I lived in northern Vermont for a year, so it wasn't even close to the most snow that I've ever seen. But uh, for northern Virginia, this was seen as an enormous challenge. The nicknames we gave to it, Snowpocalypse and Snowmageddon, Uh, merely reveal that we have no real understanding of what an apocalypse or Armageddon will actually look like. These are momentous biblical words that are used to describe death and destruction on a massive scale. And the reality is we trivialize them. Not only that, for the large part, many of us uh, in Northern Virginia... uh, Put it simply, we panicked. And many of us in our church panicked. We were scheduled to have a men's retreat the weekend of the storm. And I think Bill, John, Greg, and Dave did an excellent job of preparing a plan for the weekend, communicating the plan, and executing the plan. And since then, they've come up with an alternate plan. So we'll still be able to have the retreat now scheduled, uh, rescheduled for April. However, in the midst of all that retreat uh, planning and several late-night conference calls, I'm estimating that between the four of them and myself, we received uh, collectively something in the neighborhood of 100 emails and phone calls that said something to the effect of, oh my God, we're having a snowstorm. And it was as if there was this collective thought that none of us involved with the retreat actually owned televisions or computers. (laughs) We couldn't possibly know what was about to happen. Even though this barrage of panic and worry came largely by email. In 13 years as your pastor, my opinion of my own church had reached its lowest point. The primary thing I was thinking about was that after preaching through Revelation for five months, nobody's heard anything I've said. 
So we're going to start over. <laughs> no, but I honestly, I thought we are missing the point of God's sovereignty. We don't believe that Jesus reigns. We can't handle the purification of faith through hardship. And we're totally unprepared for either suffering or persecution in this life. I felt there was a collective breakdown of our ability to trust God in the midst of what mounted to serious inconvenience. And I immediately thought of Paul's rebuke to the Corinthian church, and I'm including myself in this. In 1 Corinthians 3, he said, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you're not ready, for you're still the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And I was seriously, I seriously considered going back and starting Revelation all over again. But one thing stopped me from doing that. Should I say one person, and she does not know that I'm going to say this. But in the midst of the snowstorm, in the midst of the emails, in the midst of the phone calls, there was one among us who was a shining beacon of trust in a sovereign God. While we were encased in anxiety about how the snow would affect our lives, she sat in a nursing home, and day after day after day, she watched her mother slowly die. And Karen's faith in the midst of that situation, far more difficult than uh, shoveling snow, reminded me that when the circumstances of our life really become difficult and hard and filled with suffering, there are some among us who actually get it. And because of their faith in a sovereign God, they're able to get through it. And for that, I am grateful. Thank you, Karen. These flowers up here today are from her mom's funeral. And they're beautiful. I say all that because we're about to open Revelation chapter 8 and 9. And it's going to reveal God's ongoing judgment on the world. And it's filled with images that are confusing and frightening. And it will reveal who the saints really are. And hidden amidst the overwhelming horror of these chapters, God's grace is there. But panic and worry will obscure our vision and dampen our faith. And without faith, it's impossible to see God. Hebrews 10 uh, pleads with us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So today we are back in Revelation and we're now in the deep waters of chapters 8 and 9. And we start with silence. Silence, verses 1 through 5. Silence. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The sixth seal at the end of chapter 6 showed the dismantling of the present earth and heaven through a great earthquake that would shake and shatter the earth and the sky. We might then expect the seventh seal to disclose the new creation that is to come. Instead, when the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, nothing seems to happen. We read there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now remember, everything we've been told about heaven in the book of Revelation so far involves massive, huge worship including many loud praises and a great deal of singing. Revelation 4, the four living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Chapter 5, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. And jumping down to verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We go to chapter 7. After this, I looked a great multitude that no one could number, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I mean, all we've gotten so far has been unceasing praise, thousands of loud voices, and worshipful singing. And now we open chapter 8, silence. What is in the seventh seal of the scroll that would cause heaven to just stop? We have to go to the Old Testament prophets for the answer. Habakkuk chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Zephaniah chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah chapter 2. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This silence is the calm before the storm. For God's enemies on earth, it's a silence of dread and fear. But for those sealed by God, it's a silence of eager expectation. I think this kind of silence is hard to imagine. It's almost impossible to bring about. If we all were absolutely still and absolutely quiet, 
we would still be able to hear many things. Our world is so full of noise. During the, sm- the snowstorm, I had a small taste of what this silence might be like. Because in the middle of the night, we lost power about 2 a.m. And the sudden silence woke me up. No humming of the myriad electronic gadgets that fill our houses. No buzzing of the alarm clocks. No rattle of the furnace. You can't hear the computers or the DVR. Just sheer, unadulterated silence. It was marvelous. I got up and I looked out the window at the falling snow piling up all around our house, glistening white even in the middle of the night. And you couldn't hear a sound. And I thought, is this what it will be like standing before the Lord, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and made white as snow? I don't know, but I know it was an amazing feeling. And here in Revelation 8, we're told it only lasts for about half an hour. Now try to be absolutely quiet and completely still for half an hour. It's really, really hard. And it will seem like a really, really long time. And your senses get heightened waiting for something to break the spell. And for John, that comes in stunning fashion. Because all of a sudden he sees seven angels with seven trumpets ready to sound the warnings of God. But before they do, another angel enters the scene to offer incense before the throne of God. The incense is burned and rises before God with the prayers of the saints. And we'd heard the prayers of those saints back in chapter 6 in Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now God has heard and is answering the pleas of these martyrs, as well as the prayers of the saints still on earth in the midst of the battle. And then this angel, verse 5, took the censer that holds the incense and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then the seven angels stepped forward to blow the trumpets. Starting at verse 6, trumpets. That's the second blank. So you have silence and trumpets. Because this is so long, there's all sorts of good stuff that I cut out. So you need to come to my Sunday school class to get some of the extra stuff. Starting at chapter 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. 
A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. As the trumpets begin to sound, the scene shifts from heaven to earth. Fiery judgments fall upon the earth. Fire with blood falls on the land. A great mountain is thrown into the sea. Star bur stars burning like torches fall into the rivers and the spring, springs, and the sky is partially darkened. And the judgments symbolized here in the trumpet cycle come from the altar on which the incense of the prayers of the saints has been offered and the judgments are given as God's answer to his people's pleas and prayers. How often do you pray like that? You pray for God's judgment to come forth. John's hearers at the end of the first century would see society shaken by scandal, split by intrigue, and threatened by assault. Sounds all very familiar. But he doesn't want them to be paralyzed by fear. And these traumatic uh, judgments are merely instruments in the hand of the Lamb exposing the emptiness of human arrogance and summoning the nations to repentance. And the most significant Old Testament parallel comes to us from the book of Exodus and the description of the plagues that God unleashed upon Egypt in order to force them to release his people from slavery and from exile. In the first trumpet, John sees hail and fire thrown to the earth. In the seventh plague, in Exodus chapter 9, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire rain down uh, to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant in the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So we have this comparison in Revelation 8 of hail being sent down from heaven. And we have a parallel in Exodus in the seventh plague. In the second trumpet, John sees a mountain thrown into the sea, turning the water to blood. In the first plague, in Exodus 7, the waters of the Nile are turned to blood, killing all the fish in the river. In the third trumpet, John sees a great star named Wormwood. Now you know where that name comes from, from you C.S. Lewis fans. 
It's burning like a torch. It falls into the water, making it bitter and poisonous. The same consequence of the first plague, which we read about in Exodus chapter 8, made the water unfit for drinking. Twice, the prophet Jeremiah pronounces a similar judgment on Israel. Jeremiah 9, 15, and then again, uh, almost identical verse in Jeremiah 23, 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food, literally wormwood, and give them poisonous water to drink. Then the fourth trumpet affects the source of light, echoing the ninth plague on Egypt, which brought complete darkness on Egypt for three days. And whether God opens the seals and sends his riders, conquest, violence, famine, and death, whether God has the trumpets blown, sending calamities upon the earth, although they're all limited in scope here, or whether we wait for the bowls which are coming to be poured out in unrestrained, catastrophic uh, judgment on the, in, the, in the end, all of it is done as a means by which the Lamb rescues and sanctifies and vindicates his suffering church. And only those sealed with his name will greet that day with joy. And I'd rather not preach on judgment. You know, when they ask you the kind of things you want to preach on, judgment doesn't usually make the list. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, it's all about love, really like that one. That's a good chapter. I'll pick that one to preach on. And, you know, the Gospels. Let's preach about Easter, the resurrection. That's one of our favorites. You know, judgment, not so much. Doesn't make my list. But it is good news. How is that? How is judgment good news? Simply because judgment shows us that God really cares. Judgment says that we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says that God takes evil and sin seriously. Judgment says that God is not indifferent to evil, nor is he tolerant of sin. And judgment says that God moves against both evil and sin. But here, the judgment is not total. Did you see the fraction one-third? third of this, a third of that. It occurs eight times in the Greek, depending on what version you have, somewhere between seven and ten times. A third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the rivers, a third of the water, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of the trees, a third of the light. Chapter 9, a third of mankind. And the fraction spells Mercy. Mercy, yeah, it's only one-third, not two-thirds. And the fractions, of course, are not to be taken with mathematical literalness. None of the numbers in Revelation are to be taken with mathematical literal, literalness. I'm not even sure that's a word, but I can't pronounce it. The fractions, the numbers, are symbols. They're not statistics. One-third is a symbol, and here it's a symbol of mercy. The judgment is not total. And we have that. Uh, Louise redid our banner. 
And you see in the top in the center, one-third. Why then are these trumpets sounded? They're sounded to warn the world of pending total judgment. But knowing that much of the world will not respond to the warnings of God, the trumpets are then accompanied by woes. By woes, picking up at the end of chapter 8. Woes, W-O-E-S. That's your next blank. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Hopefully you've learned that when a word is repeated uh, in the Bible, that adds emphasis. They don't have in Hebrew, they don't use uh, uh, good, better, best. So they say, holy, holy, holy. Here we have, whoa, whoa, whoa. Part is emphasis, part is there's three more trumpets to come. So there's three woes. Picking up chapter 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. This is going to go all the way through verse 19. So this is the longest part that we have. And listen carefully. Remember, the early church heard these words. They didn't read them. They didn't have a nice leather-bound Bible. Somebody came. They had one scroll for the whole church, and it was read. And everybody heard it. So put yourself in that situation and listen. Close your eyes if you need to so you can focus on listening. And how does it affect you when you hear this? And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft to the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, <coughs> like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed, behold, Two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, 
Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. Well, joy to the world. That's got to be some of the toughest, harshest language in the Bible. We're going to get worse, but we haven't gotten there yet. But as you heard that, it's stunning to hear what that judgment is going to look like and sound like. The fifth and sixth trumpets are different from the first four. The first four uh, signaled environmental disasters of some kind affecting the world in which we live. These trumpets reveal direct attacks upon, quote, those who dwell on the earth. Now remember the opening of the seals. We had the seals first. And they were given to us from the perspective of the church. And how did they affect the church and believers and people who had the seal of God? And they were unfolded in terms of how they affected the people of God. In contrast, the trumpets are given to us from the perspective of those who don't belong to God, who are repeatedly referred to as those who dwell on the earth. And there's two more Old Testament precursors to the use of trumpets that seem to correspond with what we see here in Revelation 8 and 9. The first Uh, comes to us from the siege of Jericho. Everybody remembers the story. Some of you will know the the children's song about Jericho. It comes to us from Joshua chapter 6. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. He hasn't taken the city yet. He says, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you will march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. As the priests who blew the trumpets marched before the Ark of the Covenant at Jericho, we will see when we get to Revelation 11 that the seventh trumpet brings the Ark of the Covenant into view. And like ancient Jericho, which blocked the entry of Israel into the promised land, so Babylon the Great must fall before God's people can find their permanent home in the new Jerusalem. We see the same thing with the trumpets. 
It's a signal. Every way the trumpets are used in the Old Testament, sometimes they announce the king is coming. Sometimes they announce we're preparing for war and for battle. Uh, sometimes they come as warnings. All of those apply here in Revelation. The other precursor we have comes from Joel chapter 2, which we use as our responsive reading this morning. The beginning of that chapter, uh, verse 1, says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And then like the fifth trumpet, a locust army is unleashed. And in Joel 2, uh, it, that chapter supplies the imagery that John uses here to portray the demonic riders emerging from the abyss, from the bottomless pit when the trumpet sounds. And then finally we have the introduction of Satan. As king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. It's the only place that name is used in the New Testament. Is right here. And he brings with him more pain and more death and more destruction. And there's an irony here for those who serve Satan. First we see he can't touch uh, those who are marked with God's seal. So he afflicts those who dwell on the earth, who receive the beast's mark, who worship the blasphemous images. In other words, Satan attacks his own. Satan rewards his subjects with torture. In the words of uh, St. Augustine, sin becomes the punishment for sin. Those who dwell on the earth is a technical term in Revelation. It's reserved for those who stand in the way of the coming of the kingdom. It refers to those who are in rebellion against God. One commentator says that these are the people who are at home in the present world order of power and violence. People of earthbound vision, trusting in earthly security, unable to look beyond the things that are seen and temporal. And therefore, judgment, warning, judgment gets worked out on the stage of history before the final appearing of the king. And just as the seals of the scroll are being broken even now, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding loose on the world, so also the trumpets are being sounded even now. And the purpose of the woes is to warn mankind of what must come if it remains unwilling to repent and turn to God. The world will ring with divine judgment against sin and evil. And if you do not repent, then those who dwell on the earth will suffer from their failure to repent. Look at the last two verses. Failure to repent. The purpose of the trumpet cycle is to sound the alarm, warn the complacent, call them to repentance, and summons the church to holy spiritual warfare. The plagues associated with the trumpets proclaim God's supremacy in all things and prefigure his coming judgment, but they also leave time to repent. And yet, tragically, we read at the end of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. 
The book of Revelation reveals that in these last days, God will release terrible devastation on the earth and many will die. And yet the most shocking thing we see in these chapters is not the destruction of the world around us. It's not the catastrophic loss of life. It's not the end of the world as we know it. All of which happens and will continue to happen in order to bring the world to its senses so that it would reckon with the one true and living God and repent. The Apostle Peter gives us the same warning in 2 Peter 3. He says in verse 9, and many of you have heard this verse before, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But if you read before and after, which is in your bulletin, the context of that verse is the end times judgment. Because the very next sentence says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Death flees before the Lord because God is seeking repentance. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. The worst thing is living unrepentant, missing out on life with God, and then dying unrepentant, and again, missing out on life with God. So death is kept at bay, giving us more opportunity for repentance. And that is sheer grace. But when we live in this day and age, and we witness the death and the destruction of the seals and the trumpets, what are we to do? How are we to react when thousands die. In the last 50 years, there have been 17 official famines on the continent of Africa. The most recent ones in the last 10 years have come in Darfur, Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, uh, Niger, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. And thousands starve to death every time. In 2003, there was a massive earthquake in Bam, Iran. There was widespread destruction. Thousands died. In 2004, a giant tsunami hit the South Pacific. The waves wiped out entire islands and numerous villages. The death toll was over 200,000. As Marcy is in Bangladesh, at that time we sent her to Sri Lanka. Some of you will remember. In 2008, there was a major earthquake in the Sichuan province in China. Almost 70,000 were killed. But here, a huge number of them were children whose schools collapsed on top of them. Also in 2008, Cyclone uh, Norges struck the Delta and Burma, killing over 145,000 people, devastating the country's former capital and its largest city, uh, Rangon, making it Burma's deadliest natural disaster in history. The costliest uh, North Indian cyclone on record, the second deadliest North Indian cyclone in recorded history. And that's where Emory just came back from. That's the land she was just in. And just over a month ago, we all witnessed the devastating effects of an earthquake in Haiti, which claimed over a quarter of a million lives. 
was like thousands of other catastrophes in history, but it caused me more than usual to search the scriptures to find help for dealing with it. What do you do when thousands die? Well, the Bible reveals to us that life is given freely to us by God. Life is not something we possess by virtue of our own merit. We do not own our life in relation to God. Life is God's and it's on loan to us freely so that we might enjoy glorifying God with it. It is always and totally at his disposal, never rightfully at our disposal. Life belongs to God. The Bible reveals that God is the one who takes life just as he is the one who gives life. As God's rightful possession, life is God's to take when he pleases. He doesn't need to consult with anyone else because of his authority as creator, sustainer, and owner of life puts it totally at his disposal. And he is not doing any evil when he takes back the life that he gave whenever he chooses. And there is a sense in which God's sovereignty overrules but also uses the death-dealing work of Satan and the tragedies of the world. And we have to come to terms uh, with both the sovereignty of God and the truth that Satan, who is on God's leash, is involved in the miseries of pain and death. When Jesus was asked about a tragedy in which a tower uh, uh, in Siloam fell on 18 people and killed them, he answered Luke 13, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It means that God's purpose in suddenly taking life is not necessarily to show a group's greater sinfulness. I don't care what Pat Robertson says. Rather, in dealing with them in a just way, according to his authority and his ownership of life and his right to rule the world as the Lord of all things, one of his purposes is to warn the rest of us that our lives are in his hands and we should repent of sin and be ready at any time to die. Ezekiel 18 tells us that God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. The heart of God is large and complex. He's able to be grieved over the pain of his creatures while at the same time ordaining that very pain uh, to take place for a higher and greater purpose that brings him more joy than if he had run the world in some other way. Why is that? And here's the point for Revelation 8 and 9. We need judgment if we're going to have salvation. Say that again. We need judgment if we're going to have salvation. Without the doctrine of divine judgment, we have no doctrine of divine salvation. Without a serious doctrine of divine judgment of God's holiness and justice demanding his punishment of the wicked, without that, nothing of any real importance is left. There is no great salvation because there's no fate worse than death to be saved from. There's no great savior. We would have no need of such a figure. There's no Christmas, no incarnation of God the Son because whatever problems man may have, they're not so much that only the mighty God can solve them. 
and certainly are not so much to require the suffering and death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Christ was bearing our judgment on the cross, but what is the point of that if there is no judgment? No judgment, no Christmas, no Easter, no salvation. And our response to these chapters, our response to the judgment of God, therefore should be to weep with those who weep and not to delight in the destruction of anyone in this age, but to extend the love of Christ and the hope of salvation as long as we can to those who live. When confronted with the question why, we must look to the God who has absolute rights over us and take heed to ourselves knowing that our time will be soon. And thus we are to repent and live utterly for the glory of the one who made us, for the joy of knowing him and showing his glory. And we are to repent at tragedy. We are to repent at disaster. We are to repent when we hear of earthquakes and famines. It should lead us to repentance, and then it should lead us to gather as many of the perishing as we can into his banquet hall while there's still time. After all, he's the king, and he's coming again, and he's calling us to be ready. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Thank you for revealing judgment to us. And thank you for using that to reveal salvation and grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. Help us understand that you take this world seriously. That evil and sin will be judged. And yet you are patient, giving us time for repentance. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would make us repentant people. That we would be thankful that you're a just God who brings judgment on evil and sin. And yet be thankful that you sent your Son, whose blood washes us clean, that we might be white as snow and stand before you. Change us into people who understand your word and trust your word and live by your word. And don't panic or worry or be anxious when we don't understand the world around us. Do this for us in the name of your son Jesus who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.